0: Thank you, ladies, and thank you, Chancel Choir, and to the swinging and singing seniors. They left after they sang, not because they're mad at anybody, but because <laughs> they've been here a long time, and they sang and sat through the 830 service, as did some others who are involved. So um, I don't think it's anything we said or did. They've just been here a long time. Also, I notice uh, when I begin a worship service or when Vince or Maria begins, we always seem to make some kind of comment about the weather, and uh, that's appropriate, I suppose. And usually when it's my turn to stand up and to get involved in the service more, I say something about what's been going on (laughs) sports-wise. There are no words. Uh, We'll leave it at that. Been a hard week. <laughs> All righty, I want to. I want to begin, and then I'm going to read the scripture lesson in just a moment. So I haven't forgot it. If I do run past it, if somebody will just wave at me, but we'll we'll get to it in um, in just a minute. But I want to begin by talking a little bit about vision, and then we'll move into uh, to another phase of the message for today. And I've used this in an article recently, and some of you have heard this, Yogi Berra. Supposedly, and he said he didn't say everything that we think he said, but Yogi Berra supposedly said, if you don't know where you're going, you might end up somewhere else. Now in his book, You Only Have to Die, And it's not a morbid book. I know the title sort of sounds that way. But James Harnish, who's a retired United Methodist pastor, who was at the Hyde Park Memorial UMC in Tampa, Florida, for years and years, and who did a terrific job there. And I've been in some seminars and conferences with him. And he's he's an amazing leader. But in his book, You Only Have to Die, he reminds us of that decisive moment in Alice in Wonderland When Alice comes to a fork in the road and doesn't know which way to turn, and she asks the Cheshire Cat which road to take, and he asks her where she wants to go, and she says she has no idea. He said, if you don't know where you want to go, any road will take you there. An insurance executive decided to take the back roads to a conference that she was going to in Columbia, South Carolina. She came to a fork in the road and stopped and was puzzled because the sign said down one fork, Columbia, South Carolina, 30 miles. And down the other fork, the sign indicated Columbia, South Carolina, 30 miles. So she noticed a guy sitting over by the side of the road, just kind of sitting on the bank there, just whittling away on a stick. And she rolled down the wind and she said, sir. Does it matter which one of these roads I take? And he spit out a long brown stream of tobacco out of the side of his mouth, and he said, nope, not to me it don't. (laughs) Where are we going, church, and what are our plans for getting there? The phrase mission statement and vision statement we sometimes use interchangeably For us, our mission statement is the why, the purpose. Why are we here? And we put it in the bulletin every Sunday. I think you've probably noticed it's the mission statement of our denomination that we have embraced to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And a vision statement is how we plan to accomplish the mission. How are we going to get there? What's it going to look like when we get there? but there will be times when we may interchange the two phrases and uh, I hope that's okay with you. We are looking at unrolling and we begin that process today, a new vision statement for Newland First United Methodist Church. Our staff has been working on that for over a year. We've had many committed lay people who've been to meetings and shared their input. And so we begin to roll that statement out to be a church empowered, by the Holy Spirit and united by the Holy Spirit where all are welcome is the first part of the statement. But let's talk a little bit more about vision before we we jump into the welcome part. Albert Einstein said, most people see what is and never see what can be. And then back to the book I mentioned earlier by James Harnish, You Only Have to Die. The writer says in chapter 8, which is a chapter titled "Vision Matters." He um, he makes a few points here, and let me leave you with these points or these questions before we move on. Number one: How clear is God's vision for your congregation? Do you know where you're going? Has your congregation experienced something like the vision that Peter announced on the day of Pentecost? Two: How would your congregation answer these questions? A: Who are we? B: Why are we here? C: What do we believe? D, who are the people in our community who currently are not committed to Jesus Christ? And what would we have to do to reach those folk? And E, what is the unique ministry to which God is calling this church in this community at this time in our life together? Number three, does our church's mission and vision express the authentic voice of the people? Number four, are we willing for the vision to come alive in its own time, not rushing it, but not trying to hold it back either? And five, what steps will we take to discover this vision that God is planning in the hearts of this congregation? We're going to be talking about those things over the course of this service today and then the next two Sundays. And I hope you'll talk to us. I hope you'll talk to me and share your insights and your thoughts and I'll We need to hear from you. We need to talk to each other. But today we look at that first part of the vision statement to be a church who welcomes all persons. And our scripture lesson is from Romans chapter 15 beginning with verse 7. Romans chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 7 through 13. And I would encourage you to follow along in your Bible or a pew Bible or whatever version you happen to have available to you. Romans 15 beginning with verse 7, welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised on behalf of the truth of God in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people praise him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse shall come, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall hope. May the God of hope fill you with all of the joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God. The word welcome is a word of kindly greeting as to one whose arrival gives us pleasure. And the word goes way back. Originally in old English, will kuma, will meaning pleasure and kuma meaning guest, Welcome the guest. It's our pleasure to welcome guests among us, to learn from them, to be enhanced by them, to be encouraged by them. We have been welcomed, as this passage makes so very clear, we have been welcomed by Christ. And as we are welcomed by Christ and live with him, we become welcomers, reaching out to those around us in the church and outside the church and in the community. The passage spoke of the Gentiles over and over again. The word Gentiles really is sometimes translated outsiders or of the nations, all of the nations outside of Israel, the Gentiles, all of us. We might continue this conversation by thinking about some of our favorite places to eat out or to transact business And then we might also think about those places that we've been to and we have said to ourselves on the way out the door, I'll never go back there again. Why? What's the difference? And I think the difference is hospitality. The difference is welcome. Did we feel welcomed in that place, like it really mattered to those folks that we were there? Or could they not care less whether we ever came back or not? It's important to, um, to ask those things and, and then to think about that in terms of the church. What does it say about the church and what does it say to the church and what can we learn from those life experiences? Another passage in Romans, just one verse that I want to add at this time, Romans twelve thirteen. Contribute to the needs of the saints, extend hospitality or welcome to strangers, or as Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, help needy Christians be inventive in hospitality. Be creative. What are the things we can say and do in this place that will help more and more folk feel welcome? Some of you remember a book from a few years back. You may have studied it here before I got here, and you may still be reading parts of it, Five Practices of Fruitful Congregations, written by Bishop Robert Schnees, who was at the Missouri Conference at the time. And he had a companion book, or several companions to that. One was called Cultivating Fruitfulness, and he gives some examples in that book of hospitality. And there's one story that he tells there that has really stuck with me, and maybe you've heard it, maybe not but think about it with me. A young woman stands awkwardly in the entryway with her toddler looking around at all the people she does not know on her first visit to a church. An acquaintance at work casually mentioned how she loved the music at that church and loved the worship and encouraged her to visit. But now she's not so sure that it's a good idea. She's standing there wondering about childcare, self-conscious about the fussiness of her little one, Unsure where the bathroom is, too timid to ask directions, doubting whether this is the right worship service for her or even the right church. Where is she to sit? What's it going to feel like to sit alone with her child? And what if her little one makes too much noise? She's been feeling the need for prayer, for the connection with other human beings and for something to lift her above the daily grind of her job and the unending bills and the conflict with her ex-husband and her worries for her child. Now imagine what would happen if people took Jesus' words seriously. They would look at this woman and they would see a bundle of anxieties and hopes and fears and desires and discomforts that she carries and thinks, this is a member of Jesus' family. And Jesus wants us to treat her as we would treat Jesus himself if he were here. With this in mind, what would be the quality of the welcome? What would be the quality of the efforts to ease the awkwardness? What would be the enthusiasm to help, to serve, to graciously receive and support and encourage? We know, don't we, in our better moments, we, all, we know that taking Jesus seriously... Changes our behavior. And that's so important that we remember that. That story has, has stuck with me from the time I first heard it. And then there's another thought from Bishop Schnees that I want to share with you, and then we'll, we'll move on. Um, this has to do with counting the cost and considering the cost. Anytime we talk about welcoming folks in an extreme kind of way, opening our hearts and minds to folks, Well, there's some cost involved. To become a vibrant, fruitful, growing congregation sometimes requires a change of attitude, practices, and values. Good intentions are not enough. And Bishop Schnees wrote these words. When I read them, I said, oh, goodness, that is all too true, and I've been guilty of this. He said, too many churches want more young people as long as they act like older people. We want more newcomers as long as they act like old-timers. It takes practice, he said, practicing radical hospitality, extreme welcome, and all the redirecting of our energy that comes with this. Churches can't keep doing the things they've always been doing. Little changes have big effects. Little changes, medium-sized changes, big changes in order to become more hospitable. Often the first question we ask is, well, can we afford this? And that's an important question. It needs to stay on the list, but should it be the first question? Or should the first question be, can we afford not to do this? The process leading to an answer is not always simple, and it's seldom easy. Fred Craddock died two or three years ago now. My favorite preacher of all time. Some of you may have heard him. Some of you may have read... Some of the things he wrote, just an incredible human being. Terrific preacher, an accomplished storyteller. And I want to share one of his stories with you at this point about hospitality and welcoming folks and counting the cost. What do we have to lose when we don't do these things? He said, I used to go home to West Tennessee where an old high school buddy of mine had a restaurant. I called him Buck. Go home for Christmas. Merry Christmas, Buck. And I'd get a piece of chest pie and a cup of coffee, and it was always free. Merry Christmas, Buck. I'd say every year it was the same. I went in and said, Merry Christmas, Buck. He said, Let's go for coffee. And I said, What's the matter? Isn't this the restaurant? And he said, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder. We went for coffee, and pretty soon he said, Did you see the curtain? I said, I saw the curtain, Buck. I always see the curtain. What he meant by curtain is this. They had a number of buildings in that town that they called shotgun buildings. They're long buildings and have two entrances, one from the back alley and one from the street, and with a curtain and a kitchen in the middle. And his restaurant, his diner, is in one of those. If you are white, you come in off the street, and if you are black, you come in off the alley. He said, did you see the curtain? I said, I saw the curtain. He said, the curtain has to come down. I said, good, bring it down. He said, that's easy for you to say. Come in here from out of state and tell me how to run my business. I said, okay, leave it up. He said, I can't leave it up. I said, well, then take it down. (laughs) I can't take it down. He's in terrible shape. He's, after a while, he said, if I take that curtain down, I lose a lot of my customers. If I leave that curtain up, I lose my soul. Most of the extreme welcome decisions that we make in the church do not carry that kind of price tag, but sometimes they do. Maybe then the questions for today are who's out, and who's in? Who do we welcome? Who do we ignore? One more story, and sometimes I don't know a better way to talk about what's on my heart than to tell these stories. And this one from Tony Campolo, an American Baptist minister who taught at Eastern College in Pennsylvania for years and years. I've heard him speak. Many of you have too, perhaps. He's written a ton of books. He's also a terrific storyteller, but a very different style. He wrote this story called Grace for Our Enemies, And this is another one that made an impact on me. and made me think about this whole welcoming business and what we need to be doing. He said, once a year in Northern Ireland, there was an event that from my point of view seemed to be very spiteful. Protestants who called themselves the Orange Men would march through the Catholic community. Led by a band, they would stick it to the Catholics. They said, reminded them how they had been conquered by the army of a Protestant prince and made subject to Protestant overlords. The march always stirred up uncontrollable anger among the Catholics of Porterdown, the small city where one of the most offensive marches always took place. It was on the eve of one of those marches that I was asked to speak at a peace rally in City Hall in Porterdown. Proceeding me on the program was a Catholic bishop, and this Catholic bishop told a most remarkable story. His mother had come to Northern Ireland from Russia following World War II. The bishop explained that because 40 million Russians had died in that war, almost every family in the environs of Moscow had been affected. When the war was over, the Nazi prisoners of war were taken from the stockade and they were marched down the main street of Moscow to the train station where they'd be shipped back to Germany. The bishop told how the people of Moscow wanted these prisoners who were led through the street who had brought such death and devastation into their lives, how the people along the way wanted at these people, wanted to harm them, wanted to to tear them to pieces, these Nazis. The Russian soldiers could barely hold back the angry crowds on both sides of the street. The first group of Nazis who came down the street was the officers. Their heads were held high. Their uniforms carefully buttoned as they marched with typical arrogance. They were out to demonstrate to the angry mob that they had no regrets. They had not been daunted by the imprisonment and they were still proud men of dignity. As the Nazi officers marched down the street, it was a very bad situation. And people really were just pushing and straining to get out there and do them harm. They screamed. They yelled obscenities at them. It was painful and hard to watch. They were trying to break through the barriers. Then, said the bishop, the crowd grew suddenly silent. And there came behind the officers, the enlisted men, not having been treated as well as their superiors, they were on the verge of death, nearly starting, their bodies just skin and bones, what had been their uniforms now rags, and they were doing their best to make their way to the train station, and the stronger among them were holding up the weaker just to keep them from falling. They were an incredibly wretched sight, to behold, the crowd grew silent, and then somehow a woman broke through the line of Russian soldiers, and she ran up to one of these men, and offered him a piece of bread. And then the other women along the way ran back to their homes and they started coming back with little bits of bread, little bits of food, what little they had, and offering it to these men who were so ragged and who were starving. Suddenly those German soldiers were transformed in the eyes of the onlookers that afternoon. No longer were they seen as arrogant, evil men, explained the bishop. Instead, my mother told me, each of them had become, in the eyes of the onlookers, somebody else's little boy, hungry and far away from home. And tomorrow, said the bishop to the Catholics assembled at the rally, is the orange men come through your neighborhood taunting you? and saying evil things against you, do your best to look at them and say, each one of them is somebody's little boy, hungry, far away from home. Figuratively speaking, who could argue with that? To be Christian is to view others with a Christ-like understanding and empathy. Radical hospitality, extreme welcome, Some of them will show up here. Yeah, right here. Some of them we will encounter in other places. Each of them is somebody's little boy, somebody's little girl, hungry. And how many different ways are they hungry? Physically, emotionally, spiritually hungry and very far from home. This world is not my home. I must be traveling on. I was a stranger, Jesus said, and you did or did not welcome me. Amen.